Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of New Books in South Asia, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Madhuri. And today we are talking to Professor Alf Nielsen about his book, Adivasis and the State, Subalternity and Citizenship in India's Bheel Heartland. So Professor Nielsen is a professor of sociology at the University of Pretoria. But today he is joining us from what I'm told is a cold morning in Norway. Thanks so much uh, for joining us here at uh, New Books Network, Alf. Thank you, Madhuri. It's a pleasure to be with you. So before we jump into the book, why don't you start out by telling our listeners a little bit about your personal trajectory, your intellectual trajectory? I mean, what drew you to the Bheel heartland, to India, to sociology? Well, my work uh, reflects a trajectory where uh, I've been interested since um, since my late teens in issues of uh, north-south relations, issues of development, and uh, interested from a critical point of view, if you will. Uh, that made me uh, search out, when I was an undergraduate student, uh, social movements uh, that protested, if you will, uh, uh, official uh, development interventions, uh, official narratives of what development was. Uh, this was in the late 1990s uh, when the struggle against large dams in the Narmada Valley uh, was entering what uh, turned out to be um, its last major phase. Um, and um, whilst doing research for my undergraduate dissertation, I ended up actually in the Narmada Valley, uh, uh, which is, uh, of course, a central part of the Peel heartland, uh, where I started um, looking into uh, the trajectory of the um, anti-dam movement, uh, which subsequently became actually my doctoral research. Um, and it's in the process of doing doing that work that uh, I developed a more general interest in how we might understand uh, social movements in uh, remote regions, uh, such as the ones that I've been working in, uh, as telling us something about, if you will, the very essential parts of state formation and capitalist development, uh, both in colonial and post-colonial India. So that's uh, that. In brief, is uh, is an overview of of the trajectory that's uh, resulted finally uh, in the book that we're we're talking about today. So, you've told me in our brief email correspondence that this book was almost nine years in the making. Am I correct? That's right. Yeah, it took almost a decade from uh, the first bits of research till uh, till publication. And, you know, it's held together by a collaborative, community-driven data collection process. Now, will you tell our listeners a little bit about Aadharshila and how you came up with this idea of, you know, collecting 
oral histories and what that experience was right from training your interviewers to you know how the communities responded to this uh, method of data collection i mean because you know sometimes this process of uh, retelling stories from the past especially contentious political stories from the past in a community environment can be so powerful in and of itself yeah absolutely so uh, let me contextualize a little bit um when i did my doctoral research i i i, I crisscrossed the uh, the namada valley i spent a lot of time in the ladivasi communities affected by the sardar sarovar project and so this is in the border area between maharashtra gujarat and madhya pradesh um and while i was doing that uh, i became aware of the fact that or i noticed from the interviews i carried out that uh, whereas people felt very strongly about their opposition to the Namada Dam projects uh, and so on, and the defense of their livelihoods and their life worlds, what they really spoke in detail about was uh, a form of mobilization that predated the Narmada Bachao Andalang, uh, which uh, took the form of local social movements, such as the ones that I write about in this book, uh, that mobilized around basic democratic demands in relationship to the local states. Um, and uh, it's uh, dawned on me that there was a, a story to be written in some detail there about the kind of collective agency and um, sense of identity and indeed citizenship that had emerged from those uh, from those local social movements that in many ways had existed in the shadow of the Narmada Bachao Andalan. So when I started to do that uh, or started working on, on that project, uh, it started off uh, in a very conventional way. I thought I would do the same thing as I did when I uh, investigated the Narmada anti-dam movement, uh, which was to go in um, to you know the area in question uh, with uh, an assistant who would um, help me with translation and so on and so forth. Uh, but luckily, uh, one of my first interviews was with uh, two middle-class activists who had been active with the Kerut Masot Jetna Sangat, which is one of the, the movements at the heart of this book, uh, who had also been affiliated with Namada Bachao Andalan, uh, who at a certain point in their activist trajectory had shifted from uh, Ali Rajpur town, which is in uh, western, rural western Madhya Pradesh, uh, to, um, to another locale uh, quite nearby and had set up a school uh, for uh, Adivasi children. Uh, the school in, que in question is Atashila. Uh, it's a school that practices alternative forms of pedagogy to provide uh, education uh, to young children and youth uh, from a part of uh, rural India where schooling is very often insufficient, uh, sometimes entirely absent. Um, I went there to uh, conduct what you might call a pilot interview to get uh, you know, their story about, uh, the, uh, uh, about the trajectory of, uh, of the KMCS, the Kerut Masur Chetna Sangat. Um, and then uh, after our discussion, uh, or after the interview, um, we sat down and we were chatting, and uh, it was they actually, uh, Amit uh, and Jayashri, who suggested to me that uh, it might be worth considering an alternative methodology 
they said this because they had a long-standing interest in collecting the oral histories of activists uh, in this part of Madhya Pradesh that had been involved with local Adivasi movements. Uh, they also suggested to me that a way of doing that would be to work with uh, their teachers. Um, the reason why they said that was that these teachers were themselves uh, young Adivasis, many of whom had parents who had been actively involved with the activism that I wanted to research and to investigate. Now, I thought this sounded like a wonderful idea, uh, much better than the sort of more conventional parachuting in and then airlifting out that characterizes way too much of uh, of our research um, and uh, we began the process soon after uh, of bringing together teachers uh, who were interested in participating uh, in the work uh, discussing what uh, it might look like what it would entail to collect these oral histories of activism and resistance uh, and started devising an interview guide together uh, this interview guide was uh, translated into local languages um, and we started touring the area, which uh, took uh, almost a year and a half, collecting some 70 um, interviews, uh, in-depth interviews and oral histories from activists. Um, it's interesting what you mentioned in terms of the power of retelling these stories in a community setting, because I realized when I was trying to enumerate how many people we had interviewed, that there was no way of doing it. Because very often you'd go to a village to interview one or two activists and uh, people would gather around and sit down and listen and then begin to interject. And all of a sudden you had uh, a group interview, uh, you know, uh, and uh, what this eventually left us with was quite a rich archive uh, of stories of activism, stories that are very rarely told because these movements produce little by the way of a written archive. Um, and it also became, I think, an interesting and rewarding exercise for uh, the, the researchers involved, many of whom said that uh, they had come to learn things uh, that they'd only seen sort of from a distance and with a with the perspective of, of being a child at the time, uh, of having their parents, for example, thrown in jail uh, by local authorities for protesting or spending time away from the home and so on and so, on and so forth, and, and learning about issues that they, that they had some kind of learning more about issues that they had some vague knowledge about before. So it was a very interesting exercise and, and really, I think, rewarding for, for all parties involved. And the transcription process, was it also carried out on the ground simultaneously? In, in part, it was, yeah. Some of the transcription was carried out um, subsequently, or all of it was carried out subsequently. Some of it was carried out with the help of uh, people who weren't related to the actual data collection. Uh, and other bits uh, involved the researchers as well. Um, so... There was that attempt, if you will, uh, of uh, of integrating the research team uh, along the way. Um, I think it's important, though, when when we discuss you know these kind of alternative methodologies, that this wasn't carefully worked out. Uh, it certainly wasn't flawless, and it certainly wasn't complete. In the sense, this was uh, very much uh, trial and error. It was learning by doing, and. Uh, you know, there are many more things that one would have wanted to do with the material collected, such as, for example, um, crafting small publications uh, written in local languages, uh, and so on and so forth, that it wasn't possible to do. So I wouldn't want to make this up as some kind of, or, or portray this as some kind of perfect, if you will, uh, activist uh, methodology. It was very much, um, you know, 
uh, something that we just did, uh, which became very different from from a conventional exercise, but which still had aspects to it that uh, you know one would want to work on uh, in a in sort of in a more longer term uh, to 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 get better to to adjust and uh, to make more relevant, if you will, to to the needs of uh, producing knowledge that's relevant to to local communities and local communities that are very much involved in struggle. Right, and the afterlife of these research initiatives are, you know, themselves so underexplored and not yet Absolutely. fully understood. So I would be curious mm-hmm. to return and ask these uh, teachers, you know, who doubled up as interviewers and if, you know, these conversations made them reassess and rethink their present moment, so... Well, it's very interesting to see that uh, a lot of um, th- there's been a sort of resurgence, if you will, of mobilization by Adivasi youth in the region where we carried out this project. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've been wondering often uh, about uh, the extent to which uh, uh, this is something that resonates uh, with uh, what uh, these researchers learned and became involved with through the collection of these oral histories. Questions for your third book, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So, you know, moving from uh, methodology to more theoretical waters, I, you know, am familiar with your other writings and know that Gramsci has been uh, an important theoretical interlocutor for you. Mm, Why... And how do you continue, right, to find his ideas useful for grappling with contemporary India? Would you just maybe ruminate a little bit? Sure. Uh, So Gramsci, for me, uh, presents a kind of treasure trove, if you will, of of, uh, conceptual tools that are so relevant to the study of subalternity and uh, and uh, resistance, um, which has got to do with the fact that I think Gramsci had um, a very rare uh, and very special grasp of the subtleties uh, of uh, both the ways in which dominant groups uh, in any specific setting uh, come to craft their hegemonic position, uh, the ways in which power is exercised but also limited. And conversely, I think he had a very uh, fine-grained and indeed... Um, very acute understanding of how subaltern groups then uh, negotiate the exercise of power from below. Uh, I think his view um, of these dynamics uh, very often defy some of the um, the watertight compartments uh, that have animated um, you know much of the debate around subaltern politics in India since the early 1980s by saying that look uh, hegemony is never absolute and total. It's always negotiated. Uh, There are always limits. And those limits are inscribed, if you will, uh, by the collective action uh, of subaltern groups. Uh, about It comes from the fact that subaltern groups do have an ability to say, okay, this far, but no further uh, in relation to the exercise of dominance from above. And conversely, I think that Gramsci's thinking uh, avoids 
pushing us in the direction of thinking about uh, subaltern groups as though they exist in an autonomous domain, which is entirely removed from, uh, if you will, uh, the sort of world of belief systems and imaginaries that animate or underpin hegemony. Uh, I think it points us towards something that's really crucial, which is that rather than being, if you will, uh, an autonomous actor that uh, that that sort of engages in collective action on the basis of um, political imaginaries that are totally different from and other than uh, those that uh, constitute, if you will, the backbone of hegemony. What is so special about subaltern resistance and subaltern collective action is that it's predicated upon an ability uh, to take idioms and institutions and practices that are actually intended to prop up the power of elite groups, the power of dominant groups, and turn them into, uh, if you will, weapons of resistance. And it's that sort of tenacious capacity that uh, that I wanted to call attention to. I wanted to call attention to, in this book in particular, what happens when subaltern groups uh, actually come together and resist against all the odds. Because let's remember that uh, we're talking about some of the most marginal uh, groups, if you will, both economically and politically in Indian society. We're talking in this specific case about uh, Adivasi communities that were ground down, if you will, by what I call the everyday tyranny of the local state. Uh, and in trying to get a grasp on that is precisely the, the deeply relational and deeply dialectical thinking that one finds in Gramsci uh, that has proven so helpful. And I don't think it's entirely irrelevant here that uh, Gramsci developed his theories not from, if you will, uh, the standpoint of, an, of a detached academic, but from the standpoint of someone who in his time was very, very much involved in activism. So it was about, it's about theory that grows out of participating in movements, trying to understand movements, trying to understand the communities that are at the heart of those movements. And I think that gives you a different kind of theorizing, uh, a theorizing that ultimately is more grounded uh, in the realities, the actual realities of, of those very complex dialectical relations that exist between dominant groups and subaltern groups, between hegemony and between resistance. Thank you. And, you know, speaking of everyday tyranny, you know, you begin the book by also paying attention to how this everyday tyranny is mediated by local rationalities as well, right? The fear, the resignation. Will you talk a little bit about how this local rationality within, right, few communities and the power relations within Bihil communities are as important to pay attention to? Well, what I argue in my book is that uh, through persistent encounters with the local state over long periods of historical time, arguably uh, since before independence, uh, this sort of this way of thinking about uh, how one relates to the local powers that be uh, within these communities has come into being, which is characterized by uh, a certain form of acquiescence. Uh, what we're talking about here is the fact that communities would accept, uh, albeit begrudgingly, uh, for example, forest guards coming to a village, taking away poultry, demanding bribes, beating up people, and so on and so forth, these myriad forms of extortion, which I document in the book. But 
It's also important to understand that the relationship was mediated by what you might call uh, local elites internally in these Adivasi communities, very often Patels uh, and Sarpanches, so uh, let's call them uh, village heads, uh, village headmen, that who, who had a stake, if you will, in maintaining uh, their position as mediators between the communities and the local state because it, it gave certain benefits. This is an arrangement that came into being uh, during uh, a period which I also speak about in the book, which uh, you might call sort of the late colonial era, that is from... Um, from the early 1900s up until the 1920s, uh, when in these princely states, uh, when in, in these princely states, um, one saw a development of a new administrative structure that hinged very much on the appointment of uh, local figures uh, within Adivasi communities, the <clears throat> village headmen, and so on and so forth, that could, uh, if you will, um, be the bridgehead of the state uh, into these communities. And I think it's important to understand that um, these, these, the, the, you know, these bridgeheads uh, and who and and these mediators were a very important part of the power relations that these movements came up against. You know, they had to be challenged along with the state in order for communities to emerge, if you will, as collective entities that were insurgent, uh, that challenged the workings of everyday tyranny. And that was often, if you will, more difficult than simply challenging the state, uh, as far as I gather from 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 the, the narratives that I've collected, uh, in the sense that these were people who could also make life very difficult, if you will, for what I call ordinary Peel Adivasis, that is, Peel Adivasis with no stake as such in the existing power structure. So again, when I write about this, it's an attempt to bring out uh, the many-layered nature, if you will, uh, of state-society relations in this region uh, and to avoid any sort of simple uh, dichotomy between subaltern groups on the one hand and, uh, you know, dominant groups on the other. And the transition from the colonial to the post-colonial order, what did that entail? Well, what I argue in my book is that... Um, the areas which I uh, which I look at were all princely states, uh, and uh, but nevertheless they became, if you will, uh, woven into colonial processes of state formation in Western India, that effectively subordinated uh, Beel communities uh, to the power of uh, what you might call a sort of a modern state uh, that that was slowly emerging. Uh, this relationship of subordination was reproduced. Uh, after independence is remarkable uh, in how how little things changed in terms of uh, local meals being more subjects than citizens, despite the fact that, of course, formally, uh, with the introduction of universal franchise and so on and so forth in uh, India after 1947, uh, despite all of this, they were completely disenfranchised. Uh, this is an effect, I argue, uh, in the book uh, of... The way in which Congress established alliances with local ruling classes, uh, the former princely rulers, if you will, uh, how these princely rulers became uh, in this particular area of Madhya Pradesh, in this particular area of, of Western India, became, if you will, uh, the equivalent uh, of the local dominant um, groups that we know mediated Congress rule elsewhere in India. 
after 47. Uh, so here, what we see here is in the sense of, sort of the working of India's passive revolution uh, in a remote rural region uh, at a very local scale. Uh, and what it resulted in, of course, was the fact that the power of these groups the power of the former princely rulers, which was very much power over Adivasi communities, was reproduced over time and was reproduced into uh, <clears throat> into India's independence and was only ruptured uh, much later in the 1980s and 1990s when these local social movements started coming about. Uh, and it's been really important for me to, to bring out these links to say that these are not aberrations that we see here. You know, it's, it's not about something that happened in a remote rural corner because this, the remoteness of the place, for example, allowed some kind of um, local despotism to involve, uh, to evolve. Sorry, this is about uh, the way in which uh, political power has been structured in India at a national scale uh, and the way in which that has led to the disenfranchisement of certain subaltern groups. And speaking of citizens and subjects, I think throughout the book, you're very carefully critical of that civil-political dichotomy, right? And you frame the Adivasi Mukti Sangathan as well as the Kedut Mazdur, Chetan Sangat's work as a kind of, uh, I think somewhere you quote, uh, legalism from below, right? As the mm. way of perhaps better understanding these kinds of activisms. So will you perhaps elaborate a little bit about why it's important for us to step back from this dichotomy and complicate these social movements is not one thing or the other? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I think generally uh, what we should have learned uh, at this point in time is that binaries uh, are not very useful uh, when it comes to understanding the, the dynamics of actually existing subaltern politics. Uh, much of my book is predicated, if you will, uh, on that sort of basic sensibility. Uh, so what I do in the book is that uh, I engage in a close debate and a critical debate with uh, Partha Chatterjee's uh, work on the politics of the governed and the argument that uh, subaltern groups in India today, although they engage with the state, engage with that part of the state which, uh, if you will, is predicated upon governmentality rather than citizenship, civil society and law. So what I found, uh, and I think this uh, resonates with a number of studies on subaltern politics in India today, is that quite contrary to Chatterjee's postulations, law civil society and citizenship were actually at the heart uh, of what these movements uh, that I've studied uh, were mobilizing around. They were mobilizing around legality in state society relations, demanding that the local states both implement and follow the law, uh, precisely because the role of the state, the presence of the state uh, in this region uh, was characterized by utter lawlessness, if you will, you know, by the constant breaking of law. So this became a, a very effective um, counter-hegemonic tool. Secondly, they created, through their insistence on legality and state society uh, relations, they created uh, a very rudimentary civil society in the form of a space in which um, democratic uh, transactions could take place between Adivasi communities and the local state. So rather than being sort of cordoned off, if you will, into what uh, Chatterjee would call political society, I see these groups as creating a civil society. And finally, I also see them 
<coughs> excuse me, uh, demanding the right to have rights, which is uh, at the very heart of citizenship, and then inflecting that with um, and expanding, if you will, the idea of what a citizen is by uh, demanding local self-rule, uh, by demanding control over natural resources, and so on and so forth. Uh, fundamentally, what's uh, at stake here is um, a concern with understanding what subaltern groups actually do when they mobilize so that we can make informed judgments, if you will, of what works and what doesn't in terms of advancing subaltern emancipation. Uh, we don't get very far uh, if we squeeze uh, subaltern groups into uh, analytical categories that have little relationship to what they what they actually do. Uh, so what I've tried to do here is to move away from, uh, you know, consistently move away from any kind of idea that's predicated on watertight compartments, any kind of idea that's predicated on um, democratic modernity being somehow only relevant to elite groups in India, and instead saying, what is it that happens when subaltern groups, those groups which have been disenfranchised or who have been marginalized within India's democratic modernity, claim it for themselves? What is it that happens then uh, to power relations? What is it that happens then to the public sphere? And so on and so forth. And I've been trying to, to argue that democratic political modernity in India as elsewhere uh, is very much shaped by the way in which subaltern groups seize hold of the idioms, the institutions, and the practices that are defining of that modernity. Uh, this is not about any kind of normative attachment to law, to civil society, and to citizenship, uh, that kind of liberal normative attachment. It's a, about um, an analytical obligation, I think, or an, 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 an analytical commitment to looking at what's actually being done by subaltern groups as they try to negotiate uh, power from above. Right, and the enthusiastic mobilization around, you know, the new rights agenda, be it the FRA, be it the NRE, mm. the right to food. I mean, this is all a testament to um, the argument that you're making. So why then call it non-reformist reform? Well, that is an argument that I make in the concluding chapter to, to my book. Uh, I wanted to write a conclusion that uh, was uh, somewhat different from a conventional ending to a book where you sort of summarize your argument and throw in a couple of rhetorical flourishes uh, about uh, the power of, uh, of subaltern resistance and so on and so forth. I wanted to try and say something about if you will, what we can learn from the trajectory of these struggles. And it's important to, to sort of uh, mention to, to our listeners that these struggles advanced, if you will, or democratized local state society relations, but they were also subjected to quite savage repression from above, which I document uh, towards the end of the book. So it's, it's that sort of combination, if you will, of both achievements and limitations that lies at the heart of, of me trying to, 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 uh, to uh, conclude the book by reflecting of, uh, uh, on what might it mean to construct a new form of oppositional politics that has the capacity to decisively disrupt power relations in this region. I turn to the phrase non-reformist reform, uh, which uh, was coined by Andre Gortz and which I became aware of uh, through uh, learning of the work of uh, Ruthie Wilson Gilmore uh, and actually mobilization in a very different, uh, in a very different context, uh, that is mobilization around prison reform or prison abolition rather in the US. 
it appeals to me because it's a term that enables and that enables us to overcome uh, again if you will watertight compartments or binaries that uh, has very often hampered i think uh, thinking about uh, radical opposition politics in the Indian context, where um, you're sort of talking either about revolution or you're talking about incremental reforms. Uh, the term non-reformist reform uh, enables us to think uh, what it might mean to grab a hold of um, institutions and idioms uh, and practices that were initially conceived and designed as a way of extending hegemony. Uh, of ensuring the reproduction of hegemony uh, and turning them into tools for change that cannot be confined, if you will, uh, within uh, the parameters of the given social order or the currently existing social order. So what I talk about in, my, in, uh, in, uh, in the concluding chapters of the book is uh, what it might mean to start a mobilizing process um, from the basis of rights-based legislation. Now, one can argue perfectly well that things like the NREGA, the Forest Rights Act, uh, the Right to Information Act, and so on and so forth, were concessions granted by the UPA regime during the decade of its rule uh, that were intended, if you will, to pacify uh, social movements or to bring social movements within, uh, within uh, or into a space where they could be contained. Uh, and that's true. But it's also true that these laws, through mobilization, can be made far more radical than what the powers that be intended them uh, to be. Uh, so what I argue is that uh, an, a non-reformist uh, or a non-reformist reform kind of politics should start from uh, that particular space, the space of rights-based legislation, grab a hold of these laws and consistently define them and practice them in ways that defy, if you will, hegemonic intentions. Uh, and also to then think beyond, uh, if you will, the divide between non-party politics and party politics uh, to enter into the electoral domain to make use of, for all its, um, all its limitations, uh, the domain of electoral politics, and to draw lessons from across fields, from across, if you will, lower caste politics, class-based politics, the politics of the left in India, and so on and so forth. Uh, the call for non-reformist reform to be a principle in subaltern politics in the Indian context is, in a sense, a call to to move beyond um, these various trenches that, um, how can I put it, different groups have been hiding behind uh, and have been um, embedded in, which has prevented, if you will, uh, productive thinking about how to move ahead with a progressive agenda um, for subaltern emancipation uh, in the Indian context. So is this what, you know, primarily animated you to emphasize, you know, not the traditional issue-driven social movement that, you know, we have across Adivasi India, right? Be it uh, against SEZs, mining, real estate speculation. But I think what you do really well in the book is to also draw our attention to the longer ongoing structural conditions of disenfranchisement, right? So be it agricultural debt, be it migration, be it malnutrition, just the slow violence that is uh, grinding down the Indian countryside. And you put together that with the possibility of 
the kinds of counter-hegemonic forces that then can um, crystallize. Did you think of these two things as something you wanted to address simultaneously in a single book, consciously? Well, it's. Uh, I'm, first of all, I'm, I'm glad that that you read the read what I've written in the way that you do, and 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 that you think you think about it in these terms. And oddly enough, uh, uh, thinking back to to my field notes, uh, I, I was I was just going through them the other day, and uh, one of the first things that I write in in my first uh, field diary uh, on one of the the first days of of being being out there collecting all histories is that uh, you know a reminder to myself to think about uh, this idea that. Um, Adivasi India, to use that term, which is problematic in some ways, but for want of a better term, uh, is a, is a window, if you will, uh, through which uh, it's possible to see uh, the basic contradictions of the political economy of both democracy and development in India. That is the way in which uh, the political economy of development marginalizes. Uh, groups such as Adivasis and, and why that happens uh, and understanding that there's a relationship between the marginalization of Adivasis and the marginalization of other subaltern groups, be it Dalits, landless laborers, informal sector workers, you name it. Also the way in which the political economy of um, power in relation to democracy leads to effective disenfranchisement and then how uh, it's possible to contest all of that so yes very much uh, i mean to me uh, it's been a question of developing an analysis which doesn't um side which doesn't sort of sideline or opposite adivasi movements and indeed adivasi communities as, as a kind of separate domain that requires a separate analytical optic it's been about trying to emphasize how, when we look at Adivasi struggles, uh, we're actually looking at uh, one particular manifestation uh, of some very fundamental contradictions uh, in India's political economy. And in looking at these struggles, it's also possible to to think about the struggles of other groups. And it's precisely in doing that, and I think this is this is quite basic to to activist logic you know in that 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 one thinks across struggles and tries to the best of one's ability to think about how struggles in one locale will be related to struggles elsewhere and how to make real that connection through solidarity uh, that's been you know fundamental to trying to develop this analysis and particularly to trying to develop the analysis in uh, in in the final chapter of the book, where I talk about non-reformist reform and and the necessity of situating non-reformist reform at the heart of of an oppositional counter-hegemonic agenda in India, and it's also why I've chosen to write this book as a book about subaltern politics, if you will, not necess- not so not as you know a book in what you might call Adivasi studies. I think it's important to have those dialogues across fields going, both you know scholarly and 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 sort of intellectually among critical scholars. Uh, as well as in the field of mobilization and activism. What is next for you, Alf, in terms of uh, research and writing? I'm working on uh, a book project with uh, two colleagues, uh, which is coming out of a project that uh, ran uh, between 2014 and 2018, uh, in which we look at the relationship between law, state formation, and social movements in India over a effectively a 100-year period, uh, from the 1920s till uh, up to the present day, uh, and the way in which law has can be a prism through which to view the way in which uh, social movements have 
impacted on state formation in India and uh, conversely how uh, state formation has if you will conditioned and impacted on social movements um, so so work is proceeding on that um, and and that's going to be the main focus of my work for the next uh, next year or next couple of years or so that does sounds ambitious mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> forward to reading it in the meantime all the best for your new position in south africa and thank you so much for joining us here on new books in south asia thank you very much mother it's been a pleasure